You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 243 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. We're going to pick back up with the story right where we left off. At about 8 a.m. on the morning of the last day of 1862, with the Confederate attack on the southern portion of the battlefield having already smashed the Union right by overwhelming two enemy divisions there. Yep. But in the last show, we'd said that the federal commander, William Rosecrans, had also planned to attack that morning. In fact, the opposing commanders had both come up with the same plan, defend on their right and attack the enemy with their left. We already know that the Confederate assault got off to a smashing start on the morning of December 31st. But what happened to Rosecrans' plan to attack the rebels? Well, Old Rosie had started New Year's Eve day at the headquarters of left-wing commander Thomas Crittenden, near McFadden's Ford on Stones River. Rosecrans and his staff heard the firing to the south on the federal right, but apparently thought little of it, since when McCook's wing of the army had been grinding forward into position the day before, there had been some sharp combat on that part of the battlefield, and now Rosecrans seems to have assumed that the sounds of battle coming from that direction were simply a renewal of that fighting. And so Rosecrans continued with his plan to attack the rebel right that morning, and Crittenden's advance began on schedule at 7 a.m. Van Cleve's division splashed across McFadden's ford and deployed on the east side of the river, while Wood's division awaited its turn to cross. At about 7.30, though, while Rosecrans was watching that movement, a staff officer from McCook rode up with a vague report that, quote, the right wing was heavily pressed and needed reinforcements, end quote. Not appreciating that a catastrophe was taking place on his right, Rosecrans replied, quote, tell him to dispose his troops to best advantage and to hold his ground obstinately, end quote and sent the man back to McCook. However, 30 minutes later, another of McCook's aides arrived with a more detailed report that gave a clearer picture of the disaster that had overtaken the Army of the Cumberland's right wing. This information was accompanied by what Rosecrans called, quote, the rapid movement of the noise of battle toward the north, end quote and the federal commander was momentarily stunned by the enormity of the calamity taking place. 
Quickly recovering his composure, however, Rosecrans promised help for McCook and immediately had Crittenden recall Van Cleve's men from across the river. Instead of attacking on the Federal left, the force around McCadden's Ford would now be used to shore up the Army's crumbling right. One brigade stayed behind to watch the ford, while the rest of Van Cleve's division marched to the sound of the guns. Wood also detached some of his troops to help. These movements took time, however, and were further slowed by mud and confusion along the Nashville Pike. At nine o'clock, George Thomas, the commander of the Federal Center Wing, received orders to send Rousseau's veteran division to help the right wing. Having thus discarded the original battle plan and started reinforcements toward McCook, Rosecrans and his staff galloped toward the scene of the fighting to try and save the army. Meanwhile, the fighting spread as more units of both armies swung into action. On the Confederate side, Withers and Cheatham's divisions of Polk's Corps prepared to attack the portion of the Federal line to their front and up to Stones River itself. To avoid command confusion, Cheatham directed the four left brigades, while Withers led the four on the right. Bragg's plan called for these troops to make an echelon attack, with each unit attacking one after the other in stair-step fashion, from left to right. On the Union side, Philip Sheridan's Federals stood opposite the Rebel line here. Sheridan's position ran through some rolling and rocky terrain studded with woods. Alarmed by the amount of enemy activity across the way, Sheridan had awakened his men at 4.30 that morning and had them prepare for action. And so, unlike the other divisions of the Federal right wing, Phil Sheridan's was ready for the Rebel attack when it came. The first Confederate blows fell about 7.30 a.m. on Brigadier General Joshua Sills' brigade on Sheridan's right. Sheridan later recalled how, quote, The enemy attacked me, advancing across an old cotton field in Sills' front in heavy masses. Federal cannon fire and musketry tore into the attacking rebels, wounding Brigade Commander John Q. Loomis and causing the Confederate assault to stall. More rebel formations advanced in support, though. A counterattack by two of Sill's regiments pushed the Confederates back, but Sill fell at the head of his troops when he was shot in the head. Colonel Nicholas Grusel of the 36th Illinois succeeded Sill in command of the brigade. But as we related in the last show, the division of Union General Jefferson C. Davis eventually collapsed in the face of the Confederate attack, and when Davis's division gave way, it uncovered Sheridan's right. The rebels then proceeded to hit Sheridan's division from three directions, from front, right, and rear. In a superb piece of battlefield leadership, Sheridan extricated his troops from the trap and pulled them back to a new line facing south, along a low ridge behind the Giles Harding House. The new line was anchored by the division's artillery along the left flank. Sheridan later said, quote, No hope of stemming the tide at this point seemed probable, but to gain time, I retained my ground as long as possible. End quote. 
Sheridan's stand was aided by elements of Davis's division that rallied alongside his men, and by the fact that, pa- that Patrick Claiborne's Confederates had by this time ran low on ammunition and paused to refill their cartridge boxes. Shortly after 10 a.m., Sheridan pulled back his division across the Wilkinson Pike, taking up position in a large patch of cedars and rock outcroppings alongside Negley's veterans. The situation was critical for the Federals. Lieutenant Arthur MacArthur of the 24th Wisconsin summed it up in a letter home when he said, quote, At length we arrived in the woods, and here was a general retreat, and I would not have given a snap of my fingers for the whole army. Remember that Bragg's plan called for the Confederate attack that morning to smash the Federal right and fold Rosecrans' line in on itself like a closing jackknife. And so far, that plan was working. So yes, the situation at about 10 o'clock was critical for the Yankees. But now the impact of Rosecrans' decision to strip his left began to pay dividends as federal reinforcements arrived to try and prevent the jackknife from closing. While the main infantry battle occurred between Sheridan's Yankees and Cheatham's rebels, a mile to the west, Claiborne's and McCown's Confederates pressed northward. Their rapid advance was punctuated by sharp skirmishes with disorganized federal units that stood in their way. But Claiborne and McCown became concerned about getting too far behind the federal line and becoming isolated, so both divisions paused along the Wilkinson Pike so the men could refill their cartridge boxes. After that, McCown angled his division northeastward toward the Cedars beyond Sheridan's right flank, while Claiborne's division stayed in contact with the Federals and kept up the attack. Meanwhile, a little north of the Wilkinson Pike, the cavalry of both sides grappled over possession of McCook's wagon train, which represented a rich prize of ammunition, rations, and supplies. Wharton's Confederate horsemen pursued the dozens of wagons, brushing aside most of the Federal troopers who had just arrived to guard them. As the rebels got in amongst the fleeing wagons, though, Colonel John Kennett, the senior Union cavalry commander on the battlefield, rode in with two more regiments of northern horsemen, charged the Confederates, and secured the wagons. Escorted by the victorious Federal troopers, the wagons made it to the Nashville Pike and safety. Meanwhile, Lovell Rousseau deployed his division of Federal infantry in the Cedars to Sheridan's right. As they took position, Rousseau told his men they were to, quote, hold it until hell freezes over. Rousseau's left tied loosely with Sheridan's troops, while his right dangled in the air. As the Confederates slammed into Rousseau's line, Colonel Robert B. Vance of the 29th North Carolina said, Here the struggle of the day took place. The enemy, sheltering themselves behind the trunks of the thickly standing trees and the large rocks, of which there were many, stubbornly contested the ground inch by inch. The powerful Confederate attack strained the Union line and cracked it in places. Ultimately, though, the rebels fell back in the face of the fierce Federal musketry and cannon fire. 
As the Confederates reformed their formations, Rousseau became worried about his position and the possibility of being outflanked on his right, since the rest of McCown's rebels threatened to push past the unanchored end of his line there. To Rousseau's rear, back across to Cottonfield, stood the vital Nashville Pike, and a knoll between the road and railroad dominated the ground in this area. Rousseau decided that was the place to make his final stand. He sent orders to his brigade commanders to fall back there. Just as that order went out, however, the Confederates struck again. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. While Rousseau's men fought in the Cedars to keep the jackknife from snapping shut, the divisions of Sheridan and Negley struggled to hold open the jackknife's hinge. Because of the shape of the Union line, the Confederate attacks converged on the wooded, rocky outcroppings along the Wilkinson Pike, defended by Sheridan's infantry and two of Negley's brigades. Sheridan's artillery held the line's apex. The Federals sheltered in the woods and rocks while the Confederates approached across several hundred yards of open cotton field. As the action began, Rosecrans sent word that Negley and Sheridan were to hold at all costs, even if it meant the total destruction of their divisions. Sheridan later said, quote, Every energy was therefore bent to simple holding of our ground. For an hour, the Confederates hammered this sector with concentrated artillery fire and repeated infantry charges. Colonel George Roberts died leading the defense of his all-Illinois brigade. He was the second of Sheridan's brigade commanders killed that day. The savage seesaw fighting here earned the area the nickname the Slaughter Pen. The Union troops held on, repelling all rebel attacks on the Slaughter Pen. Eventually, the Confederates withdrew back across the Wilkinson Pike and traded fire with the Federals in the woods, and the fighting here settled into a bloody stalemate. 
To Sheridan's right, Rousseau's Federals fought in the Cedars against growing Confederate pressure. Most of Rousseau's units had received the order to fall back and complied, but John Beatty's brigade had not and remained in position. His men fought on, continuing to hold off the rebel onslaught and unaware of their growing predicament. The colonel learned that his brigade had been left behind when he discovered the other Union troops had fallen back. Beatty later recalled how he concluded, quote, that the contingency has arisen to which General Rousseau referred, that is to say, that hell had frozen over, and about faced my brigade and marched to the rear. End quote. The hard-charging rebels pursued, turning the withdrawal from the cedar thickets into a rout. Beatty remembered how, quote, The field between the cedars and the Nashville Pike is by this time covered with flying troops, and the enemy's fire is most deadly. The tide of retreat carried Beatty and his men back to the pike. There, Rousseau rallied the division and prepared a new defensive position. Rousseau's withdrawal allowed the Confederates to sweep into the open field behind the divisions of Sheridan and Negley, thereby threatening them with encirclement. To add to their problems, both divisions were running low on ammunition, Sheridan's men dangerously so. Negley ordered his division to, quote, cut its way through, end quote, while Sheridan, Sheridan instructed his troops to fix bayonets and fall back. Due to mud crew fatigue, and so many artillery horses being shot down, most of the Union guns here had to be left behind. The rough terrain, combined with relentless Confederate pressure, led to disorder in the Federal divisions as they withdrew. Officers brought their units back in as good as order as possible, but to one witness it looked like, quote, 10,000 fugitives burst from the cedar thickets and rushed into the open space between them and the turnpike. Colonel Otho Strahl of the 4th and 5th Tennessee said, quote, We continued to press the enemy, fighting as we advanced, until we had driven them entirely out of the glade. End quote. Quite a few Federals were captured in the confusion, but the majority made it back to the Nashville Pike. As the Cedars fight ended about 11 a.m., the battle balanced on a knife's edge as Rosecrans Federals withdrew slash retreated back to the all-important Nashville Pike and Bragg's Confederates pursued them. As still advancing rebel units emerged from the Cedar Thickets, most Confederates saw the road itself, the objective they were fighting to reach, for the first time. The rebels' momentum slackened a bit as Claiborne's division angled left and started northward, but McCown's, Cheatham's, and Withers' troops continued to advance directly against the new federal position. Victory was literally in sight for the Confederates. At this time, perceptive Confederates' observers may have seen a group of enemy officers on horseback galloping along the federal line. It was William Rosecrans and his staff who were riding about, often under fire, giving advice, orders, and encouragement. 
Scores of Union soldiers would write of seeing the commanding general dashing here and there on his gray horse with an unlit cigar clamped between his teeth. Rosecrans later came under criticism for acting more like a brigade commander during this part of the fight. But there's no doubt that in the heat of the moment, his performance was an inspiration to the men at this crucial time. Rosecrans' presence on the front line encouraged his army. As one officer later wrote, I could not help expressing my gratitude to Providence for having given us a man who was equal to the occasion, a general in fact as well as in name. And Brigadier General John Palmer later said, If I was to fight a battle for the dominion of the universe, I would give Rosecrans the command of as many men as he could see and who could see him. Rosecrans also took time to visit McFadden's Ford, where Colonel Samuel Price's small brigade guarded the key crossing site on the Army of the Cumberland's left. Rosecrans asked Price, Will you hold this ford? I will try, sir, was Price's reply. Not satisfied with that answer, Rosecrans asked with more emphasis, Will you hold this ford? Price declared, I will die right here. But that still wasn't the answer Rosecrans was looking for, so he asked a third time, Will you hold this ford? This time, Price replied simply, Yes, sir. That will do, said Rosecrans, who then rode off. General Rosecrans now met Sheridan's men falling back and ordered them to replenish their ammunition and support Palmer's and Wood's troops astride the Nashville Pike. Eighteen Federal artillery pieces on the small knoll between the Pike and Railroad now anchored the Federal defense. Riding over to help rally Rousseau's men, Rosecrans put the Pioneer Brigade on the knoll and personally directed Van Cleef's troops into position on the Army's far right. The first Confederates to erupt from the Cedars in pursuit of Rousseau's Federals was the Brigade of James Rains from McCown's division. Rains led his command forward on horseback, which made him a conspicuous target, and he was shot dead. A Union soldier said that the rebels, quote, came on like demons, end quote. But he continued, the Federals' artillery fire made, quote, gap after gap in their ranks. The fire was rather too hot to suit them, and what few of them was left came to an about face and skedaddled back to the cedar woods for safety. During this action, Palmer's Federals shattered a Confederate charge up the Nashville Pike by Chalmers' Mississippi Brigade. Further rebel attacks battered Palmer's division, forcing his right brigade back parallel to the pike. On the knoll, Rosecrans realized that he needed to buy time for his new line to coalesce along the pike, so he made the decision to send the brigade of regulars back into the cedars to trade their lives for the necessary time. Turning to George Thomas, Rosecrans informed the commander of the Army center wing of his decision. Thomas, in turn, ordered Lieutenant Colonel Oliver Shepard, Shepard, take your brigade in there and stop the rebels. At that, the 1,400 men of the 15th, 16th, 18th, and 19th U.S. Infantry 
marched across the cotton field and into Negley's former position in the woods. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, one of Cheatham's brigade commanders, Alexander P. Stewart, organized what units were close at hand and plunged with them into the cedars. Shepard's regulars collided with Stewart's rebels. The regulars were badly outnumbered, but they nevertheless stood their ground and fired disciplined volleys into the Confederate ranks. For perhaps twenty minutes, this unequal firefight in the woods raged, until Shepard, in his words, quote, thought it proper to order a retreat, which was probably long enough deferred, end quote. Two regiments personally led by General Rousseau helped cover the retreat of the regulars across the bullet-swept cotton field and back to the Nashville Pike. When Shepard rallied his men and counted them, only 806 answered the roll call. In 45 minutes of stubborn, ferocious combat, the regular brigade had suffered a casualty rate of 44%. But the regulars' sacrifice wasn't in vain. They had bought enough time for Rosecrans to set his army in position along the Nashville Pike. The Army of the Cumberland now stood in line, running half a mile from Stones River to the Pike and along the road for a mile and a half. Artillery along the rise between the railroad and the Pike commanded virtually the entire position. Union infantrymen were atop the knoll and along the railroad embankment, or took position in the sunken roadbed and used it as a natural trench. Behind the pike and railroad flowed Stone's River, and that meant the jackknife was almost closed, and there could be no more retreat for the Federals. And so as the last day of 1862 slipped from morning into afternoon, Braxton Bragg's Confederates, knowing they were close, so very close to victory, now sought to smash this final enemy position and win the battle. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Stones River and Tullahoma Campaigns by Christopher L. Kolakowski. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can start the process to join the Strawfoot Brigade, like our newest members, Jeff, Robert, Ethan, and Dominic. We also want to thank Dominic for his donation. Okay, then as we wrap up this show, we're obviously not done with the Battle of Stones River. So, although we had the best of intentions of doing two episodes this week and closing out the battle before we're off the air for a couple of weeks, well, that just didn't happen. So, we didn't want to do it, but we're going to have to wait to finish up Stones River until after we've moved. And so that means we'll be taking a podcast break the next two weekends as we move, but once we're settled into our new place, we'll be back with a new episode and finish the Battle of Stones River. In the grand scheme of things, with a podcast we've been doing over five and a half years now, we know that a two-week break is no big deal, but we do feel kind of badly that we're leaving you hanging right in the middle of the battle. Yeah, but 
only kind of badly since the stress of moving has been steadily ratcheting up and now getting ready for the move needs to be our main concern. So anyway, we'll say thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again in a few weeks when we'll be back to continue with the story of the Battle of Stones River. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. That means it's time for this episode. <laughs>